0: In my traveling, back and forth, 20 minutes each way, 25 minutes each way in the mornings uh, coming from from Hope Hall up here, and uh, uh, and in the five or six hours it would take to get back and forth from Savannah, uh, there's something I enjoy doing, as many of you probably enjoy. Um, I enjoy listening to music, I enjoy singing along with music, and just a a wide variety of things, Um, but I also listen to podcasts. Now for those of you who you know, don't know what a podcast is, uh, I'd be putting a cassette or a CD into the player and listening to a sermon, a message, uh, some discussion. It's a wonderful opportunity to learn and to listen. And I think about that idea of traveling from, from Savannah to here or as we travel up and down the highway, uh, that I might travel along with a teacher. I'll listen and have the privilege of having Tim Keller teach me for a while. John Piper, instruct me for a while. But not only that, but learn from other people that talk about culture, that talk about movies, that talk about other things that I have interest in, but but when it all gets back to it, that I would spend time listening to somebody like an Al Mohler who would uh, instruct me and teach me. I, I think there's something high-tech, but very special and historically grounded in that idea that we would travel, that we would walk along with our rabbi, with our teacher. We are going to begin a discussion of the gospel as Mark penned it. The second gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The second of what we call the synoptic gospels. That's Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Synoptic meaning they provide a synopsis of the life of Jesus. John's gospel kind of stands alone in its, in itself because it is much more uh, centered in on the particular teaching and doctrine as opposed to uh, they all give the story, an accurate and faithful story of Jesus' life, but we see Mark, uh, to, um, uh, to be one of the synopses we find of Jesus' life. I think about this concept of walking along with your teacher. It's, it's an interesting one because, um, uh, I have always had a, a passion for mentorship, for, uh, apprenticeship, the idea of, of spending time with somebody that is Traveling the same path as you, but maybe just a step ahead. Uh, I've had lengthy conversations in the military with uh, with commanders, with, with leaders about that idea of mentorship. And I have found it often very lacking. I tell people, particularly in the way that, that I saw it, mentorship, discipleship, we'd call it in the church, but apprenticeship, that tended to be reserved until t- somebody messed up. When somebody messed up, then they were assigned a mentor to get them back on the right path when I do believe that we need to be faithfully walking along with our teacher. And that's why I've called this, uh, this series, as we go through the Gospel of Mark, A Walk with the Master. That this is our opportunity to walk along with Jesus. That we would be blessed by the conversations as we walk along the way with our Savior. I want to challenge you uh as we begin this challenge you to uh, to give something a try there's 16 chapters in the gospel of mark 16 is a very very short uh read you could read it in a, in a brief amount of time but let me encourage you to do this that over the course of the week that you would each day read two chapters of it and when you get to mark 16 and complete that that you go back to mark chapter 1 and that our time that you would spend time each week reading through the gospel of mark that you would repeat it because it's in the reading and the rereading and the meditating on like that old cow standing out in the pasture that's just got to chew that cud a little bit more. That's how we grow: meditating on God's word, allowing it to uh, to to reside in. us. So let me tell you, by the time we get to the end of our study in the Gospel of Mark several Sundays from now, several Sundays from now, that that this would be written indelibly upon your heart, as the psalmist says. I've written your word upon my heart that I might not sin against you. Mark is is kind of like a newspaper version of the gospel, the story of Jesus. Here's what I mean by that. It's fast-paced. Mark goes uh, from event to event to event. Matter of fact, you're going to find one of the most common words, and this is not a particularly theological word, but you'll find in the gospel that he will use the word immediately. 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 Over 40 times in the 16 chapters. Because he goes from one place to the next, to the next. And this is one reason that I often recommend this to people who are just starting to read the Bible. And when you encounter people who are who are saying, well, I've tried to read the Bible, but I just get bogged down. And if I start January 1 and decide I'm going to read through the Bible, uh, maybe about January 20 or so, I find that I get bogged down in names and dates and places, and I lose heart. And I say, I'll start again next year. I said, well, give this a try. Start with the Gospel of Mark. Now, there's a very theological, theologically rich point behind doing that. And that is, as Jesus himself said, that Moses, the law, the prophets, they all point to him. Scripture interprets Scripture, and Jesus is the interpretation of Scripture. That these things point to Jesus. Jesus is the theme. Jesus is the object to which Scripture points. And so that's where we need to begin. We need to understand who Jesus is. Tim Keller uses this in his book, The Reason for God, when he talks to people who often find these weird theological little questions to uh, distract us in our conversations about godly things. For instance, you begin to talk to somebody about the Bible, and they'll say, well, you know, here's things that always stumped me, is uh, when Cain was exiled, uh, who did he marry? Right. Is is that really the question that's going to keep you out of heaven? Is that the question that's going to cause you to set aside scripture and to say, I, I don't want to study it until I find the sense? And and Keller, his response is what I think are a very good response. It's almost a uh it's, it's it's a uh it's this idea that we would say that is a very good question. It it is a valid question and something we ought to talk about, but there's something more important. Let's let's talk about who Jesus is first. Because I contend that the Bible is all about Jesus. And if that point doesn't get proven, then all the rest of it is useless argument. If Jesus is not who He said He is, if Jesus is not who we say He is, if Jesus is not very God of very God, begotten and not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things were made, if that's not who Jesus is, then let's go do something different on Sunday mornings. Let's eat, drink, and be merry, Paul says, for tomorrow there's no more. So we begin looking at Jesus, and Mark is a great place to take people to and say, let's see who Jesus is. Now, none of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, none of them identify themselves as the writers. None of the writers self-identify. You find in the epistles, Paul will say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus to the saints who are at Ephesus. Things like that where he will self-identify, but none of the Gospel writers self-identify. But the authorship historically in the church of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John has never been disputed. Now, there are always going to be those who will become increasingly critical of Scripture seeking to, to disprove or to, to lay its validity aside, but I declare that there is no reason to doubt that Mark wrote this, that Matthew wrote Matthew, that Luke wrote Luke, John wrote John, and here we find Mark. Now, who is this Mark? I want to take just a minute to, to make sure we understand who's, who's talking to us, who's telling the story, who is it that's escorting us as we walk down the street Listening to Jesus, we meet Mark in Acts chapter 12. Keep your thumb there in Mark chapter 1 and flip over with me to Acts chapter 12. Acts chapter 12, we find ourselves at a prayer meeting. One of my favorite prayer meeting stories. Remember what's happened. Uh, uh, Herod, this is Herod Agrippa I, um, has uh, killed James, the brother of John one of the sons of thunder there, right? And we also find that he has put Peter in prison. So while Peter's in prison, here's what happens. Uh, There's a prayer meeting going on, praying for the release of Peter from prison, right? Now, now here's why this is my favorite uh, prayer meeting story, is because it teaches us a little bit about ourselves, our faith, and maybe perhaps the way we go about prayer meetings wrong, and our prayer life in general wrong. Uh, What happens is, while Peter's in prison, this prayer meeting's going on, uh, what we see in chapter 12, uh, verse 5, Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered up to God for him uh, by the church. And when Herod was about to bring him out, that night Peter was sleeping, bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now an angel of the Lord stood by him, a light shone in the prison, and he struck Peter on the side and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. So what happens? An angel appears, sets Peter free. Peter, then we find... Uh, when Peter had come to himself, verse 11, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the land of Herod and from all expectation of the Jewish people. And so when he considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose name was Mark. How do you do we meet Mark? Now many were gathered there together praying, and as Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a girl named Rhoda came to answer. And when she recognized Peter's voice... Now, why were these people gathered for prayer? They were praying for Peter's release, right? Keep that in mind. Let's read together. She recognized Peter's voice. Because of her gladness, she didn't open the gate. A a, a comedy show on TV couldn't write this any better. Right? They're praying for Peter's release. She goes to the gate. She hears that it's Peter. And she turns around and leaves him at the gate. She leaves him there. This, this, This is what the text says. When she recognized Peter's voice, because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood at the gate. And they said to her, you're beside yourself. You can almost hear them saying, shh, don't bother us with that. We're praying that Peter will be released. They're praying that Peter would be released. It is announced in their presence that Peter has been released. And they shush her. But she kept insisting. And then they came up with a different explanation. They said, it's his angel. Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and they saw him, they were astonished. So we, we see this introduction that Mary there in her house, it declares this house to be the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname is Mark. Now, but by the fact that it's Mary introduced as being the one whose house it was, there's a clear indication that she was a widow. Uh, that she would would have been a widow, otherwise the husband's name would have been listed as being the, the lord of the manor there. Uh, and her son was John, whose surname was Mark. So this is how we're introduced. Now, at the end of chapter 12, uh, Barnabas and Paul take Mark with them as they leave Jerusalem. And he's declared to be an assistant, a helper in ministry. Now, if we stay in Acts for just a little bit, To further understand who this is that's going to be teaching us about the Word, we find Mark is not one of the twelve. He's not even one of the thirteen when you add Matthias and when Judas uh, killed himself and betrayed Jesus, right? We don't find him to be one of the Jerusalem apostles. We don't find him to be even in the fourteen then when we start including Paul in that equation. But he's one who's coming alongside uh, Paul and Barnabas. But then at the end of chapter, uh, as we get into chapter 13, they run into a fellow by the name of Elemas. He was a magician. Uh, he was opposing uh, these men as they preached the gospel. Uh, Paul declares him to be one who's full of deceit, a son of the devil, an enemy of righteousness, a, a wicked fellow. In verse 13, we find that this was apparently too much for young, young Mark. In verse 13, uh, now when Paul and his party set sail for Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Well, you say, Brandon, that's not very charitable that, that you would say that he deserted them when all it says is that he went on a different path. Well, again, I'm not interpreting, but Scripture interprets for us. Flipping just a bit, and we're going to get back to Mark in a second, but we see in Acts chapter 15, you can flip ahead just a little bit more, Jerusalem councils going on. That the uh the apostles and the elders have come together uh to discuss what's going on in the church, particularly in working with the Gentiles, the Jerusalem decree we find in that. But then we see a division taking place, particularly when between Paul and Barnabas. Verse thirty-six of Acts chapter fifteen. Then after some days Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit our brothers in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take him with them, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So do you see that there was some great division that took place in the midst of this because of, of Mark's action. Because apparently that, that, that which took place in Acts chapter 13 uh, caused him to turn tail and run. And, and here Paul is saying, I don't, I don't think we ought to take him with us. And Barnabas is saying, no, we should. But praise God when we read things like this, when we experience things like this in our lives... That God has another chapter to come. That God has more to the story. That God doesn't give up on us. Well, what happened some ten years later? uh, And Colossians, take my word for it, I'll read it very quickly. Colossians chapter 4, verse 10. The Apostle Paul, as he writes from Rome to the church of Colossae, he speaks about Aristarchus. My fellow prisoner greets you, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas concerning whom you receive instructions. And if he comes to you, you welcome him. So Paul, Paul in this inter- intervening time has been reconciled to Mark and he is calling Mark faithful and one that the church at Colossae should, should listen to when he comes to them. And then in Paul's very last letter, 2 Timothy 4.10, he speaks about his plight there as he is imprisoned and, and believes rightly that he would be dying soon. He says, Luke alone is with me. Now, Get Mark and bring him with you. For he is very useful to me in ministry. So we're going to be walking with Mark. A messenger who was was once found guilty of being a deserter and a coward, a failure, a liability. He was chosen to write one of the four Gospels and we ask, how did that happen? How could it be that Mark would be one to pen This by the inspiration of the Spirit. Well, certainly it is a work of the Spirit, but the Spirit used a firsthand witness in order to equip Mark for this task. One more person that comes into play in this story. Another failure. Another coward. Another deserter in ministry. A man we know as Peter. Peter, the one who declares, he says, we don't come to you with cleverly devised fables, but we were first-hand eyewitnesses to His majesty and His glory. And Peter was one who, who brought Mark in, who taught him, who ministered to him, who mentored him, who walked along with him. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, Peter concludes, she who is at Babylon, this is the way he wraps it up, Babylon, he's speaking about those at Rome. She who is at Babylon who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. So Peter has taken Mark under his wing. And so Mark traveled not only with Paul, we see in uh, his writings to Colossae and to Timothy, but also along with Peter, and traveled with Peter to Rome, right up until the point where he would have been martyred at the time of Nero. That great fire that took place there, and blamed on Christians, and Peter would have been crucified even upside down because he felt it inappropriate that he should die in the same way as jesus and so we'll read this passage together we'll read this testimony as mark writes it and we we will find the story of mark as he was taught it through peter's eyes peter who walked along with jesus we'll see peter we'll see jesus as peter saw him We'll rejoice as Peter through Mark shows us in Peter's words that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's look at this first few verses in the Gospel of Mark. Follow along with me as I read. In the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. And he preached and he said, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. We thank you, Lord God, for this, your word. Would you write it upon our hearts and would you make it indelibly impressed upon our lives that we would leave this place to serve you changed by the encounter with the true and the living God. Through Your Word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark jumps into it. No setup, no preparation. Wow, the wilderness. We just jump right into it. There's no listing of genealogies. <laughs> There's no recap of everything that's taken place. Just a couple of brief references, and then we meet John the baptizer. And we start off in the wilderness. What's That's the scene, the wilderness. Well, how did we get here? I, I do believe we have to take into consideration the idea of the wilderness. Mark begins it there, and I think he ties it very clearly in with the whole Genesis narrative of creation. Because he uses that word RK right there at the beginning, the Greek word, which we would have found in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament in the beginning. Very, very deliberate use of words there. No, uh, we believe it's called the plenary verbal inspiration of Scripture. That is that every word is God's chosen word that He used, Mark. As he was taught by Peter, inspired by the Holy Spirit, that there's no accidental phrases or choices of words, that it's all inspired by God. And he says, in the, be- in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he places it in the wilderness. So we go back to Genesis. Genesis, where God creates paradise, right? Genesis 1 and 2, the creation and all things were good until that day when God said it's bad that man should be alone, He creates woman, and we find that it's then very good but in the midst of that, sin comes upon us. Sin, sin comes into the world. Why? Because man and woman, Adam and Eve, decided that the offer as presented to them by the serpent was better than what God had provided for them. They desired to believe the lie rather than the truth that God had given them. And so we see in Genesis chapter 3, they're in the midst of paradise, God speaking to them. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, though, in the midst of the curse, and if you want to, you can flip back there with me because it's a, it's a powerful thing to see. In Genesis chapter 3, uh, we see God speaking to the serpent. We see God speaking to Eve and speaking to Adam, and we refer to this as the curse. But in the midst of him speaking to the curse, he, he says, because you have done this, you are more cursed than all the cattle. And he goes on and he says, I will put enmity, this is Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He, her seed, shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his, her seed's heel. This is referred to as the proto-evangelion, the very first evangelism, the first statement of the good news, that there would be, there would come one, a seed that would come from the woman, that would crush the head of the serpent that would crush sin, that would crush death. And we, we really see this to be the promise right there in the midst of the curse. Now, what what proceeds from that point? Uh, we see Adam and Eve, they have failed to clothe themselves in their nakedness with the leaves that they found. And God Himself, He, he killed animals. He took the skins and He clothed them. So death does come, that God covers their shame as He sheds blood. Not their blood, but a sacrifice. We find all this in Genesis chapter 3. An anticipation. An anticipation of Jesus who was to come. So Mark ties all this back to the fact that this is the one who has been promised from the very beginning where we first saw our need for a Savior, the Savior has been promised. And the very next thing we see, by the way, is that their residence is no longer paradise, but where? The wilderness. They are, they are cast out of Eden into a, a land it says where the thorns and thistles will grow and by the sweat of his brow, Adam, would earn his living. So we see them cast into the wilderness from paradise. We were cast into the wilderness. But I love the symmetry of Scripture because if you read to the end of the book, great quote, by the way, I found this week and posted, I saw it posted several places, Billy Graham saying, I'm not too worried. I read the, the end of the book, Right? <laughs> You go to the end of the book, and I love the symmetry of the fact that, that, yes, in our sin, that we were cast out of paradise into the wilderness, but through Jesus Christ, paradise shall be our home once again. And so, the wilderness theme picked up here in Mark is powerful. That the message, the word is being cried out in the wilderness, and indeed we'll find Jesus coming to the wilderness. So, in the beginning, we see the promise of a Savior. In the very beginning, But then we also see this idea of the wilderness or the desert. In the desert, we find the promise of a Savior. The passage that's given here and says, as it's written in Isaiah the prophet. Well, this is a a combination of several verses of Scripture. The predominant prophecy being taken from Isaiah. uh, But what Mark has done here is he's, he's pulled several prophecies together. Several statements, all very consistent. And we find them from Exodus, we find them... Uh, from Isaiah, and we also find them from Malachi. So we look here and and we, we step back and realize that in the desert, that is, in the desert, we've seen the promise of a Savior as well. Exodus chapter 23 verse 20. We see the passage here. Mark 1, 2, it says, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. Exodus 23, 20, God speaking, He says, Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way, and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. In the wilderness... God is saying, I will lead you out. I will lead you to that land that I have promised. Now think about what the wilderness meant to the children of Israel. It meant a place of confusion. It meant a place of, of, it, it meant a place of, of discouragement. Uh, the desert was a place of death. It was a place of wandering and rebellion for the children of Israel. But God said, behold, I send an angel before you to guard you and to bring you out. We also see in the midst of this, he does quote Isaiah. So we find the promise of a Savior in the beginning. We see a promise of a Savior in the desert. And in this passage here, as Mark is tying it all in very quickly, he says, there was the promise of a Savior in the exile. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Mark quotes the words of the prophet who were speaking to the children of Israel as they were exiled, living under foreign domination. He says, in the wilderness... A voice cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway of our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places shall become a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This was a promise given as the children of Israel said, Why, O Lord, do we suffer... Under the Persians? Under the Assyrians? Why do we suffer under the wicked oppression of these foreign nations? Why can't we be in our land worshiping and praising you? Why do we languish in the wilderness of despair? And God said, there will come a voice to cry out. And will lead you out. We also see following the exile, one more bit of prophecy. Malachi. Malachi, that final voice we find in the Old Testament... Malachi actually spoke, uh, in all likelihood, writing at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so in the return from captivity back to Jerusalem, there was a, a, a good bit of confusion, of discouragement, of frustration that was going on, a wilderness of a lack of vision, and a time of hopelessness in many ways. And, and Mark makes reference to that Malachi chapter 3 and verse 4. He says, Behold, I send a messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to His temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, He is coming, says the Lord of hosts. He's coming, Malachi says. And a little bit of additional insight that would have come from Malachi. Verse four, chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I'm sending you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of his fathers to the children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So, as Mark very rapidly begins this book, he's saying, remember the wilderness, understand the wilderness, and know that there is a voice crying in that wilderness that's pointing us and leading us out. And how is that voice heralded? How is that voice introduced? Well, it's John. It's John. And he's coming with a message, as, as Mark says, of repentance, and a message of forgiveness. John appeared preaching in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance and forgiveness. Remember now, Mark's not going to waste any time. He's going to jump right into this. He says immediately, over 40 times, and he jumps right into this. And 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 I just have to think, Mark... Me being kind of kind of silly in my reading and bringing cultural references into it, that sort of thing. I just I just think about Mark as he's introducing that. He says, "All right, this has been promised. This has been prophesied. Now here's Johnny." <laughs> Only folks of a certain age get that joke. <laughs> but but do you see that's what he's doing? He he jumps right into that. He he doesn't spend a lot of time talking about the uh uh. Other things, the genealogies and th- things we find in the other, other, uh, gospels. He jumps right into that. It says John appeared baptizing in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and all the country of Judea and Jerusalem were going out to him. So a crowd have assembled to hear him. And as I was, was thinking about this, I was mindful of, of my time at Auburn years ago when I was in grad school there. And at grad school, uh, I would have to walk from one part of campus to the other. And as you walk from one part of campus to the other, every now and then you'd find a crowd assembled. And I found a crowd assembled out by the student union one day, and it wasn't for a class, it wasn't for a pep rally, it wasn't for a fraternity event. No, there was a, a, a voice crying in the middle of that. A street preacher. A fiery, thunderous proclaimer telling everybody about their sins. Yelling at everybody that walked by frenetically waving a tattered copy of the Bible in one hand and holding a megaphone up in the other. And he was shouting and his already loud voice was distorted and harsh and the crowd would gather and they'd begin yelling back at him. Now it was an exchange that had no good end. Matter of fact, what happened was the students eventually had to go to class. He eventually got tired and he left. He picked up his box and he left campus. And too often we, we think about John as being this mean fiery voice out in the wilderness that it was just all about telling everybody how they're going to hell. And and many pick up that theme and continue today. Matter of fact, was sharing the gospel with a young lady who said she had the occasion as a child to go to church one time. And the message that she took from it that day was, it seems that everybody except the preacher is going to hell. That's... That's not the gospel, friends. This is a message preached in the wilderness, and it's different. It's different. It says, repent and know forgiveness. Repent and understand that in Jesus Christ we are forgiven. Yes, he was a fiery preacher for sure, but repentance was preached so that people would know forgiveness. George Whitfield, I love this quote of his, he says, true repentance will entirely change you. The bias of your souls will be changed and you will delight in God. You will delight in His law and you will delight in His people. That is, true repentance brings us to great delight in God. And, and John's ministry was a compassionate ministry. What he was doing is he says, all of you from Jerusalem and Judea, all of you who come out here, you may be living lives where you're rich, where you're famous and everything seems to be going well. You're entertained every day of your life, but there's something fundamentally wrong. Something foundationally that needs to be fixed. Something eternal. And what he was doing was he was speaking the truth in love. Now, we read something else here. It talks about the weird clothes. It talks about the camel hair. It talks about the leather belt. It talks about the incredibly strange diet. Locust and wild honey. Honey, I'm good with. Got to be real hungry for you to set a bowl of locust in front of me. No matter what sweet drizzle Wilda puts on top of it. You know, it's, it's going to, I mean, it's, you know it's it's a weird thing but here's here's what's going on is is that Mark is also pointing us to the fact that there was a promise given that before the day of the Lord came Elijah, Elijah would appear in Matthew chapter eleven also in mark chapter nine we we see that Jesus makes this come together, and we'll talk about it when we reach that point, but that John came in the pattern, the power, and the strength of Elijah he was not Elijah. But he came as Elijah, that voice crying in the wilderness. And think with me for just a second about the most famous words of Elijah. Remember Elijah on top of Mount Carmel? On on Mount Carmel, he spoke out not to the prophets of Baal, not to the prophets of Asherah, but to the children of Israel, who should have known better. And he spoke to them and he said, how long will you go limping between two opinions? Halting, indecisive, how long are you going to live a life like that? If the Lord's God, follow Him. If Baal is God, then follow Him. Compassionate, simple, straightforward. He's saying, understand today there's an urgency. There is an urgency. Today is a day that the truth is being placed before you. And I'm placing it before you because I love you. I want you to know this. And He came out into the wilderness to proclaim this. Well, again, why the wilderness? The Israelites... They knew the wilderness to be a dangerous and a treacherous place. But remember, we got ultimately to the wilderness because of Adam. We live in the wilderness because of Adam. And it is in the last Adam. 1 Corinthians 15 speaks about Jesus as the last Adam. In the last Adam, we are brought out of the wilderness into a restored paradise. So this outlandish... Powerful preacher, making an incredible impact. Now think about this just for a second. Think about as he has followers coming, all these coming out are repenting, are being baptized, whose lives are being changed. They're coming into the wilderness, out into the desert to hear him, not into padded pews with air conditioning and shelter and cover and cars, right? Kind of puts us to shame. They're coming out now. Imagine just for a second the pride that could have welled up in the heart of, of this man. They're coming to hear me. It's easy to let pride get in your way. And especially, especially as he saw all these things that he was predicting, all these things that he was prophesying coming to pass, because they spoke of Jesus. And who was Jesus? Jesus was his cousin. Jesus was six months younger than, in age than him. And I, I just have to think, you know, there's always going to be that bit of rivalry among like age groups, right? I'm six months older. But John's message is so, so humble, so loving, and so strong. He would say later, John chapter 3, Jesus must increase and I need to fade away. He must increase, but I must decrease. What he was preaching and what we ought to preach is this. Tim Keller says, the Christian gospel is that I am so flawed that Jesus had to die for me. And I am so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. And what this does is it leads us to deep humility and a deep confidence at the same time. It undermines swaggering, Keller says, and it also undermines sniveling. I cannot feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. I do not think more of myself nor less of myself. Instead, I think of myself less. The message of John is it's not about me. He says there's one who's coming. And this is what we'll be unpacking together over the weeks, Sundays ahead. He says, There's one who's coming. I'm not even worthy to reach down and unfasten his dirty, smelly, filthy, waste covered sandals as you walked through unsanitary conditions. John says, I'm not even worthy to provide that service to him. For he introduces us to Jesus Jesus, who is powerful in his nature, and Jesus, who is powerful in his mission, for he says, He is the one who will come and baptize you with that Holy Spirit. Our message. The story that we should love to tell. We're going to sing that in a minute. I love to tell the story. It needs to be the story that we're unpacking together. A call to repentance and a glorious promise of forgiveness and point into that single point of clarity that is Jesus Christ. The principal work of us, of we who are called by the name of Jesus, is to set the Lord Jesus Christ fully before everyone. Let me leave you with a question this morning. Let me leave you with a question this morning. If people were to describe you, if people were to be talking about you to other people, or if they were to be introducing you to a stranger, how long could they talk about you before they mention Jesus? Can they go on and on and on and on about you? Now granted, we can talk about good godly people But Jesus must be so indelibly a part of our lives, a part of our message, a part of who we are and what we do, that it needs to be what people know about us. They said, yeah, the most obvious thing when we introduce somebody who is a follower of Jesus needs to be, they love the Lord. They love Jesus. And they'll talk to you about Jesus. They'll tell you about Jesus. And they'll do it in a way that makes me want to know Jesus too. How long can people talk about you before Jesus comes up? How long can people talk to you before Jesus comes up? How long can people be around you before we turn to Jesus? For if we're walking with Him, if He is our Rabbi, if He is our Master, if He is our Lord, if He is our Savior, then He must be upon our tongues. He must be reflected in all that we say and do. And I pray that our time as we walk with the Lord will be about us. Us proclaiming the Lord Jesus. Amen.